it's really interesting because it was all about like keeping non-rich white guys from hunting. Wow. That's we're non-rich white guys. That's this is right. Exactly. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. You know? And so I mean, it works. Also, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Greenway Outdoors podcast. My name's Kyle. I'm AJ. I'm Ryan. And we've got Hank Shaw, uh, the the always humble Hank Shaw, who yeah. would only like to be known as a cookbook author, uh, even though he's pretty well known, especially in the hunting and fishing community. Um, and anytime somebody spends their entire fall at grouse camp cooking meals for people, you could start throwing around world renowned because people come up all over to, to grouse hunt, you know. Uh, but it is that's how you spent your fall. Is that right, Hank? Well, that's how I spent five weeks of it. That's for sure. Okay. Tell, tell us about grouse camp. Tell us about the cooking. It was interesting and difficult all at the same time. I mean, um, anybody out there who has worked lodge life, um, three meals a day, seven days a week, uh, it's very unusual in the, in the cooking world because most most of my career as a cook and most of people who out there who, who do this for a living, you work a shift, you know, so you might work you know, lunch and dinner or breakfast and lunch, but you rarely do people, you know, in, in real world work from 445 in the morning until about 830 or 930 at night. Right. And, and that it's, it's a tough job. I mean, I think um, people romanticize it quite a bit and yeah, it's fun. I mean, there was obviously some, some significant high notes, but it's a, uh, it will wear on you. Yeah. I, I would say that, um, when we go to these camps, you know, it's kind of rare for us to stay at a lodge, but we definitely have some experiences with it. And actually, we're getting ready to leave for a pheasant camp in uh, in just next week, actually. We leave yeah. Monday yeah. Uh, in South Dakota. But when we go to these camps, it's like it takes a lot out of whoever's being the chef to be up that early to have food ready for you, especially, God forbid, it's a duck camp where you got to be yeah. on the water at 430, you know. <laughs> It's a it's a twenty four hour shift then, and then by the time everyone gets in, there's a big dinner and dessert and everything like that. Like you said, you're looking at eight thirty before cleanup's done. Then you go to bed and you got to be up in a few hours to do it again. And seven days a week is uh is quite the gig. Are you are you married? Do you have a family? Uh, I do not. Okay, smart. Okay, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. probably a lot easier. Yeah, that's that's how we that. get away. Well, I, that's how I get away with it. Ryan's married now. I'm married. No kids though. Youngest guy on the team is married. He's got a lot of pets. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like kids. Yeah, as a chef, my question was going to be um when I found out that you did the grouse camp, I was like that's that's like making it easy on them because to us, we think grouse meat is the absolute best meat on the face of the earth. We don't think anything's better. Um it's white as snow, the flavor's incredible and you can do so much with it. Was part of the the leverage to do grouse camp because you know you'd have an easy meat to work with? No, um, I think more accurately, it's it, well. A, it was pretty close to where I decided to move, but B, um, grouse and woodcock are they're really special birds, and the opportunity to cook them over and over and over and over again was really it's not something I I, I wanted to miss. And sure. you know, I've cooked pheasants ten thousand ways to Sunday, 
And grouse are very similar in the kitchen, but they're different enough where you can do some things with them that that kind of scratch the itch from a chef's perspective. Sure. Um, and the cool thing about being at the camp was, so I always use this example when I talk to, to home cooks who fancy themselves as experts on anything, right? Um, it's the leg of lamb test. So I once met a guy who was, you know, said, ah, I cooked the best leg of lamb. I'm like, okay. Um, you know, I probably cook it, you know, every other month. It's just a, it's a great thing. I love to do it. I'm very good at it. I'm like, good. I bet, I bet you are. Um, and then he, you know, as some men can be, he, he started to thump his chest a bit. And, um, and I said, well, you know, I used to work at a restaurant where we cooked leg of lamb on the menu and I cooked eight a day for seven months. And the sheer volume of doing something over and over and over and over and over again just makes you better because you sure see enough. the variables. You see what can go wrong. You see, um, you see. I mean, I'm sure that that guy was perfectly competent, but he'll he will never see as many legs of lamb that I saw in <laughs> in less than a year. Like you know, he can be 70 years old and finally hit the number that I hit in seven months. So that repetition that you know, the, there's there's a lot of people who talk about, you know, the, the 10,000 hours or whatever. And that's true. Um, one thing I talk about, you know, which is relative to grouse and upland birds in general is plucking birds. I'm very good at it. And I've, I teach people, whoever, anybody who wants to, to, to learn, I, I teach them how to do it. I've got YouTube videos and da, 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 da. And they always come back and like, this is so hard. I'm like, you know, the first thousand are hard. <laughs> yeah. and and but it's this repetition you get muscle memory you get you've seen almost everything that there is to see in terms of what can go wrong and what can go right that you just get a kind of an inner peace about okay here this is what we're going to do and and it's very different from someone who just likes to do something but does it when they have the opportunity rather than somebody who's for whom this is their job sure sure so you originally or are you from california and then moved to wisconsin or minnesota or minnesota no, i um i i i've lived in a lot of states okay. I, I was born in new jersey oh wow okay and i did live in california for 20 years okay and i just moved to st paul minnesota um and just just this this fall what part of california were you in sacramento okay the actual town if you're familiar with johnny cash is Folsom. And and I could walk around. Well, I could walk around that prison uh, on Sunday mornings for for exercise. And oh, that's pretty cool. So people tend to know Folsom. They don't know. They don't know all the other towns. So so what what you said grouse and woodcock are pretty special birds. That's like my I I like upland hunting. Um, I've got a German short hair, and it we just got done with his first year, and he did really well. But what living all over the place, New Jersey to California, all that. What drew you to grouse and woodcock? I think uh, I started hunting both of them when I first lived in Minnesota 20 years ago. Okay. Um, at the time, I was a brand new hunter. I started hunting as uh, late in life, and it's still been it's been over 20 years. But but you know, I have some gray hair in my beard, and the the being in that forest, it's that it's that environment. So for me, hunting is it's about the food. It's about the environment that you put yourself in. And that the deciduous forest 
is very special because there's not a whole lot that you that you hunt otherwise, at least in my experience. You know, you hunt squirrels, you can hunt snowshoe hares, you can hunt grouse and woodcock, and then if the forest is right, you can hunt deer. But deer don't tend tend to like the grouse woods because it's too new. Mm-hmm. They hang out in it and they eat around it, but they don't they don't really live there. Right. So um and squirrels tend to like bigger older woods, but it's it's a it's just an interesting environment to put myself in because growing up in in the East Coast, the Watchung Mountains were very close to where I, I grew up, and so that was my na- na- nature place. That was my natural spot. Was a forest that's very much like, and I'm sure there were grouse in those in those mountains, you know, at some point in New Jersey, but there haven't been grouse in New Jersey for quite a long time. And I'm sure somebody listening to this right now would be like, I shot one just this season. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, right. oh, good for good for you. You got the last one. Um, <laughs> But, you know, nobody goes to New Jersey to hunt grouse. So um, it felt like my childhood. And so I, I kind of crave that every now and again. Okay, so there's a sort of nostalgic value that comes with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the eating qualities of the birds is pretty, pretty special too. So with woodcock, I've been trying to think of like, it, it, it's like a darker meat. It, would you say it's kind of livery? I guess I don't I don't know the-, the, the I mean, if the, you screw the, it up, yes. The, well, I mean, it's like- like the culinary terms of like what type of meat that is, I, I wouldn't, I guess I don't know the, how would you word. describe it without using that word? Yeah, right. So wood, woodcock is, a, they're an opposite bird, much like sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chickens, and uh, and a few other birds, where in that their legs are white meat and their breasts are dark meat. So um, I have a tendency to, to pluck every single one. Because A, they're pretty easy to pluck, and B, you're only allowed three a day and nine in possession. So by law, they're a special bird, which made the grouse camp experience pretty interesting because I got the opportunity to cook dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them. So we did a few things that I wouldn't normally do because to me, they're so precious. They are only cooked whole um, and they're only cooked plucked because- Yeah, you don't want to waste anything. You don't get that many. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of flavor- the breast meat is a darker meat, a little bit like duck, um, but it's very fine-grained. So if you're familiar with doves uh, or snipe or um, or pigeon, it's very similar to that in the sense that it's, it's a very fine meat. And this is where people bring the liver bit into it mm-hmm. because the, the even when it's properly done, it's far richer than you think it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because it's so dense. And then if you overcook it and cook it until it's brown, then it does get a livery, a, a, a bit of a... So when you eat poorly cooked liver, it's a little chalky on the teeth. It's like... And and it's just not pleasant. And pigeon and dove and woodcock can get like that if you if you overcook it. Yeah, that, that was... Growing up with woodcock, it was... I mean... If you overcooked the woodcock, you were almost going to, they were going to crucify you. <laughs> like they were going to put you up that like it was forbidden. It, it's, it's something you ate very. Paint paint the picture a little bit though about your grouse and woodcock experiences as far as like your camp goes. It's your dad and his friends and then kind of bringing everyone in. Like what was the culture for you, Ryan? Well, a lot of times what like by no means was anyone a chef there, but like they did a lot of experimenting with woodcock and grouse because after we do a day of hunting, we'd come back and sometimes eat them or or have some from the year prior 
Um, but I, I grew up upland hunting and not like turkey hunting or deer hunting because my dad did that growing up and did so much of it. He just kind of got tired of it and found more. Uh, he was just happier with like walking through the wood. It was more activity for him. He wanted to do something a little busier than just sitting in a tree stand waiting for a deer to walk by. Because, I mean, that's typically how you hunt deer in yeah. Michigan. Yeah, to keep There's in shape, <laughs> keep your mom around. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that. W- that's what I was introduced to, to as a young, at a young age rather than deer hunting. And a lot of the meals were like were over fires or in when the camper was up there, they would had this one recipe that was really good. It was like they would cook down a red wine. They'd put almonds and raisins in it. Um, I wish I could remember it the the exact recipe better but that was probably the best way i've ever had woodcock that was really really good with the wine and the with the wine almonds raisins and i was too i'm too young i was too young to remember it completely piece of garbage (laughs) (laughs) so out of curiosity what what of all the recipes you've tried with woodcock or grouse what one is your favorite there's probably like two or three tops simply roasted woodcock um the the camp has a grill um that you can run logs through so you can get a wood fire going and you can that that particular grill can get to 600 700 degrees wow so it'd be like a pizza oven yeah so one of the things about small birds is that the smaller the bird the hotter the heat because what you want is a very 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 hot fire that can cook the bird quickly and and blister the skin without overcooking it. Okay. So it's it's just a it's a heat to mass ratio thing and if you're going through the science of it. And so like a turkey you can cook at 325 or 350 degrees and everybody's going to be doing that, you know, for the holidays. But that's fine because the bird is, you know, anywhere from 15 to 30 pounds. But if you have a, you know, a 4 ounce woodcock you're going to destroy it. Mm-hmm. And so you, what you need is this intensely high heat. And so if you get that point, what you can get is a, a breast, breast meat cooked medium. And the skin has, is getting, starting to get crispy. It never gets like fully, fully crispy. You have to fry for that. Um, and then you just go after it. So I will typically just smear them with oil or butter or bacon fat, salt them well, maybe put some herbs in the cavity like sage or rosemary or parsley or something like that, just for mostly for aroma. And then you just put them on a platter and serve them with a very simple sauce, like a Cumberland sauce, or um, you can juice, you can use like, I mean, I wouldn't do a gravy in this particular case because it's too heavy and thick, but something light and acidic uh, to balance out the fact that the woodcock are actually really fatty and rich. I mean, that's the other thing that if you don't pluck your woodcock, you may not realize that they they get as fatty, if not fattier, than ducks, and and that fat is delicious. I actually rendered some out. If you go on my Instagram, yeah, page, no, no, we that was like that that little talking about that has been a little thing in my pocket. I've been waiting to pull it out, but I was <laughs> I was waiting for a dead spot. But no, that it's uh, a little bit of a flex, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it came out pretty good. <laughs> no, that's freaking sweet. No, go ahead, dive into it. There's this beautiful picture on his Instagram where you can see this big uh, tube of oil. And it's from Woodcock, so go ahead. Yeah, I've been dying to, I've been dying to pull that one out. <laughs> this is one of those things where you can only do it if you've got a bunch of Woodcock. 
Yeah, and, that was the first thing I was like. That's kind of the flex. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't even that many, right? It was maybe a dozen. Okay. Um, but they were just super fat, and so they had a bunch of fat on them in their body cavities, and some of them were shot up so that I I ended up mm-hmm. processing them in other ways, but I, I I sort of harvested the fat off them. Okay. Yes. It's as easy as rendering out duck fat. So basically, you take the fat off of the bird, and then heat it up, and then the fat kind of. Um, not the fact that yeah but does so we just did um it's going to be in an episode on history channel but we were just doing uh a bear hunt in i want to ask you something i i got Mm -hmm. this is a little off and then we'll come back but i if i don't want to forget now so we're we're doing a bear hunt in maine and i shoot a bear and we're going to render down the fat so when we clean the bear we took all the fat off and we're going to render it down and we're going to learn from the amish people how to make soap out of it so we go in, <laughs> Ryan's laughing. So we go and we meet with the Amish people. Extremely difficult to film it because we can't show their faces. Um, they're good with their voices being picked up by our mics, but they couldn't wear a mic. Um, and there's just all these hurdles to go through, but it kind of made it cool. And like it, we had to be really artistic with how we filmed it. Anyhow, we render down the fat and he's like, we got to do this outside because it smells, it's like a really bad smell. I was like, okay, so as if everything there didn't already stink, but that's besides the point. So then we bring it outside, and we're, like, rendering it down in this pot. And I was, like, apprehensive wondering what it was going to smell like. And what I noticed was the fat kind of, like, clumped up, and then, like, the, the clear oil kind of came out of it. And then, like, I guess what I thought was, like, when you render fat that, like, everything would melt down, and then that's what it was. But what actually happens is as if – you're taking the fat and squeezing all the oil out of it, and then, like, that clumpy stuff remains, and then you kind of separate that. And what I noticed was when we were doing it, I was like, it smells good. And I, like, leaned over, and I'm, like, smelling it. I'm like, what were they worried about? I think this smells fine. So uh, would you mind getting it, actually? Yeah. It's in the cupboard where we keep the cleaner um, and, and the bottom cabinet. So what happened was we render it down, and I'm like, this smells good. And he's like, okay, I'll jar it up for us. And then when we jar it up, you guys can come pick it up the next day. And I was like, okay, cool, so we'll just pick it up the next day. So we show up the next day, and I notice, and you'll you'll see it in a second here, um, but I noticed that there was, like, some separation to it where there was some white stuff near the bottom, and then the clear stuff was all at the top. So I open it up for AJ – because I'm like, or was it Ryan? I got somebody really bad on accident where I was like, was I was like, all right, well, you guys got to smell this because it actually smells good. The guy was wrong. So I open it up and I take a huge whiff myself and I almost immediately threw up. I mean, it was a horrific smell. And I was like, what the hell happened overnight that it went from smelling fine to smelling bad? And now when I look at it, this is it right here. I don't know if you can see. Yeah, I'll come a little closer to your camera. But you've got clear for, like, the top three inches, and then it's kind of white and then dark at the bottom white. So it's, like, three different color phases. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is, did we mess it up, one, and is it – because I thought it was all supposed to be clear. So did we not strain it enough? Should we have cheesecloth it? Is it jacked up now where it's unsavable? Is that what smelled? Like, what are your thoughts? Where where did we go wrong here? Well, um, he's like, well, you guys are an idiot. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Animal fat should be kept cold. 
They, so, they, I mean, they told us with this it didn't have to be because with Bear it would never solidify again. That's what they told us. They said Bear is different and it would never solidify and you should never put it in the fridge. That's what they told no, us. The Amish people, wrong. though. Okay. They're wrong. <laughs> okay. I mean, they probably don't have sorry, a fridge. I, <laughs> sorry, that's just flat out wrong. I mean, okay. It just doesn't make, you know, just. It's like physics doesn't apply to bears, you know. Yeah, like, right. No, all all fats have a solidification point. All fats do. Period. End of story. Okay. You know, just so I mean, you can put olive oil in the fridge, and if it's your fridge is cold enough, the olive oil set up. Okay. Like, bear fat sets up. Trust me, I've done it a thousand times. No, I trust you. Um, I just we're coming so, in blind here. <laughs> so, um, so that's so it could have turned. I don't know how old that fat is, but um, animal fat turns pretty quick it was overnight so, it smelled good w one day smelled terrible the next that's a little surprising to me um what i'm what i'm thinking of however is bears are omnivores and so the smell and the flavor of bear fat and pig fat and to some extent duck fat because they're all omnivores is going to be heavily dependent on what they were eating before you shot them so if you were hunting black bears over bait in Maine, that'll do it. Um, if you were hunting, you know, a berry eating black bear up in, in Canada, that's a better quality fat. Okay. Uh, or, or a bear eating acorns or something like that. So then, a but still you donuts. never, <laughs> yeah, donuts or, or worse salmon in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Um, Cause then they stink like low tide in a hot day. Ooh. but so the smell is going to be completely dependent on what they were eating and yes i have encountered bear fat that i just i can't do it i can make you know candles out of it or soap but but i'm not going to eat it and then i've had other bears where like oh my god the meat's fine but the the fat's really what i want you know and that's it's all entirely dependent on what the animal was eating so um in terms of, of, of straining it yes a hundred times yes because well, you basically – are you familiar with cracklins? No. Oh, uh, you guys are northerners then. Okay. So so cracklins, um, when you when you do a hog – when you add a hog killing um, and you render out the pig fat for lard, what's left over are the cracklins. And you described them when you were describing the process. And those with a little bit of salt on them or, or you know, tahine if you're in Mexico or Cajun spice or whatever, whatever, are some of God's greatest bites in the universe. Did it, did, wait, um, that's that fat, clumpy yeah. stuff left over. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's basically the tissue. Yeah. And it's crackling. It's like it's eating the world over. I'm surprised the Amish did, didn't eat it. That's a little surprising to me. But um, Well, they took it inside. This we one was a character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they probably ate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, all right, well, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Yeah, he was, was pretty amazing. adamant we left uh, then. Yeah. <laughs> so um, crackling. So, but if you don't, if you don't render the fat out enough, there's still a bit of liquid that that is involved, and that's like not liquid fat. So that's always going to be on the bottom of whatever jar that you that you do. Yeah, that's if that you white have stuff that, down there. Maybe, maybe because it you know it actually looks like it's starting to solidify at the bottom. If it's at the very, very bottom of that jar and it's the different color and it looks a little bit more like broth, you gotta you gotta set that fat up in the fridge or freezer, remove it with a spoon to another thing, and then chuck the stuff on the on the very bottom because that stuff is gonna go bad much, much quicker than the fat. So this was because from the... September. So are we screwed? Mm -hmm. It's been at room temperature since September? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
it's not good. <laughs> you got to open it, right? We were duped. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. So I mean, here, here, it did have a sweet. I'd be suspicious. First day. So it smelled good the first. Yeah. Day. It smelled like pork fat the first yeah, day to me. The so mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we were told we were making soap with this guy, and then he he hands us that. You jo- can still make soap with it. Okay. Well, he we walked away and we were told that was soap, and he's, we couldn't <laughs> pre-produce with him because we couldn't talk to him on the phone. So like, it's not like it's for History Channel. We couldn't like half-ass it, but we couldn't talk to the guy. We had to go uh-huh. like through three parties because. He can't talk on the phone. Somehow he gets a fax machine for orders, though. Not going to bring that up. But uh, um, yeah. but anyhow, um, okay, so the process now is put it in the freezer, scoop off the clear stuff off the top, put it in a separate container. No, no, no the opposite. So put it in the so put in the fridge or the freezer so that it, the fat sets up. And then if there's anything liquid left after that's happened, that's got to get removed before you can even make soap out of it because it's, it's, it's a contaminant to the pure fat, but you might have pure fat in there. I mean, you know, you got to trust the Amish to some extent. I mean, cause they probably knew what they were doing in terms of making soap. He told so, us that you put that on your body and it smells. I, 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 mean, I, I swear he said you would take that and just rub it on you. Well, number one, that's not soap. number two, um, it <laughs> will moisturize your skin. Uh, I mean, I mean, Native Americans have done bare fat to, you know, for dry skin for I don't know, ten thousand years, uh, and it works. He told us it cured arthritis. Yeah, he he's did. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nothing cures arthritis. Some some things will make arthritis feel better, but bare <laughs> fat is not one of them. Yeah. Uh, He'll be heavily fact checked before we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, but that's not soap. That's just fat. That's a rendered fat. Right. I mean, unless. If, if the, all he did was was boil out the the raw bear fat, and that's that what was did. the result. That's what that's did. just fat. That's all that is is fat. Okay. And you can absolutely use it as a fragrant a skin moisturizer because that'll it'll do that. I use olive oil for that. You know. Yeah. Um, but it'll work like that. And you know, I mean, what cures you know so called cures your arthritis when you smear that stuff on. Is you're massaging the parts of that are um, that are have arthritis, and it's going to make it feel better for a little while. I, I mean, nothing cures arthritis. It's you know, right, like, right. Yes, bare, bare fat dissolves excess bone development in the, your joints. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <Come> <laughs> I mean, I was skeptical. I was skeptical. as you should be. <laughs> yeah. So the process now: put it in the freezer, let it set. Mm-hmm. Any liquid, get rid of. Yes, and if the liquid's there, it's going to be on the bottom because fat's lighter than water. Okay, what what is what is your thought as far as and maybe you answered this? I just didn't quite. It didn't seep in like this fat didn't. Yeah, there's um, three layers now. Yeah, there's three three distinct layers. You got clear, light white, and dark white. That tells me it's just think it's thinking about setting up. You know how honey does that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. it's the same thing. Okay, okay. So it's not that we did anything wrong then. I don't think so. Well, I mean, if you were going to eat it, I would have kept it in the fridge. But if you're going to make soap, you're fine. Okay, cool. Well, that's good. Wow, that's good. Um, that we don't. My advice is to make that soap smell like something other than bear fat by adding something to it. <laughs> yeah, like essential <laughs> yeah. oils or whatever is what yeah. is what he said. Yeah, he, he needed it. We'll test it. This is. Uh, this, I'll tell you what. One way or the other, this is what my mom, sister, and girlfriend are getting for Christmas. So it better be good. What yeah, no, just, <laughs> just, just leave it. Leave it as bear fat then. Yeah, so, like, yeah. Your yeah. girlfriend can smell like bear fat. Yeah. Oh, keep yeah. the other, keep the other guys away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, prote- a protection plan. 
Well, I thank you for answer, like going off on that little divergent with us. But I wanted to ask you why I had you on the phone. I'm like, shit, this is the one human who's probably going to know exactly what we're in for. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so back to Timbo's. Um, the birds themselves, You, what was the process of rendering out all that fat? Because with the bear, all we did was cut off big clumps of fat off the meat. It was very easy to do. What was the process for you to be able to do that? And then number two, have you cooked with it yet? Yeah, so – this process works with all birds. I have a video of rendering out duck fat um, on YouTube, which I can send you the link to. But um, call this podcast bir- call this podcast Fat Boy. <laughs> yeah, there you talking go. about fat. With birds, you want to you know basically the the Pope's nose, the the tail section, the padunkadunk that has the most. Fat. <laughs> yeah. um, and there will be fat around the gizzard. There'll be fat in the neck. There'll be fat under the skin. So those are kind of all your, your places where you gather it from. And, and I do this mostly with fat ducks and geese. Um, and so the, that's where you're going to get it. And you cut it into little pieces. You don't have to be too careful, just like smallish pieces. And pro tip, if you want to use the cracklins. I was going to um, say, you, make, you get cracklins. That was my <laughs> next question. You do. If you want to use the cracklins and actually eat them, uh, what you want to do is you want to, around the tail, um, most birds have a preening gland right at the top of the tail. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't add that to the mix. Now, contrary to to the popular myth, that preening gland does not affect the flavor of the fat later. I, I, I've seen this in 100 places, and it's a billion times false. Really? It's okay. Like, Sorry, the preening gland does not affect the flavor of your fat. However, it's a weird texture if you eat it crispy fried. Okay. So most people don't like that in their cracklings, so I cut that out. Um, so you'll have, uh, the one difference you do between birds and say pork or bear is that you add water. I tend to add about, you know, I cover the fat bits in water and bring it to a rolling boil. And then what that does is that renders out fat. So by the time the water has boiled away, there's enough fat in the pan to render the rest of the fat, which the only thing you have to worry about is you do have to lower the temperature of your burner as you go. So it starts out high and it goes lower and lower and lower. And if you want pastry fat, which is white. So if you want pastry fat, you, you, as soon as the, there's, there's no more water activity going on in the pan. And you can see if you're, if you're used to frying things, and many of you who out there who who fry things regularly, you'll know or you should know that when you see the fried thing bubble a lot less, it's done. Yeah. Because the frying process is, yep. is a push pull. Yeah. You know, the, the hot oil wants to get in and the steaming water vapor wants to get out, and that's what causes the sizzle. And so when that sizzle ends, the oil's gonna get in. So that's why you pull something that you're frying at that moment. And Does it have so to do with the, the same... fact that things normally start to float too? That's another yes. sign. Yes, also true. So the same thing happens with these cracklins, right? So when the cracklins really stop doing anything, pull them out and you're done. Yeah. Except if you want to eat the cracklins or make Mexican-style lard. So if you want to eat the cracklins, you've got to – and this is where you're going to have to watch, watch it because the temperature is going to jump real quick. Um, you want the temperature to hit 350 degrees. So that's right around the smoke point of most animal fats. So be there. Don't 
don't be watching football while you're doing this. Yeah. Like, you know, watch this moment. Like you watch, you can watch like half the game. Right. But like when you get to the stage where like, okay, here we are, you got to stand there and watch it. Yeah. Um, and once the temperature hits about 325, 330, turn off the heat. Cause it's going to keep going up. Hmm. And, and then you're going to have super crispy cracklings that you pull out and then you salt them immediately. Because um, they're gonna, they're they're not gonna accept salt after a couple of minutes. So pull them out, salt them, set them aside. You, you can do something with them later, or eat them right there. And then that fat is gonna now turn kind of an amber color. And whenever you get like Mexican fresh lard at a um, at a uh, like a Mexican market, okay, it, you know you'll see it's kind of brownish. Yeah, that's why because they've heated it up to 350. Whereas pastry fat, which you don't want that caramelization. That stays white as snow, and so that gives you much more neutral flavor. I'm okay. sure this is way more than anybody wanted to hear about. No, no, no. This is no. This is awesome. <laughs> this is super yeah, interesting. That's great. No, I no. Please, please, no. Um, so then, that's what you did, obviously, with the timber. Fun fact too, right around that gland on the ducks too that he's talking about on the back, right around there is actually where the feathers are that they use to make flies. A lot of the fly feathers oh, really? are like right there. Okay. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So you do you harvest all that, you render it all down out of the the timber doodle, and then you've got this tube of oil. Um, it's really just a shot glass in the shape of a shotgun shell. Okay. Okay. How uh, did you cook with it yet? Have you done anything with I it? I did. And I did. It's and it was. Uh, so here's your test. If you're if you're dealing with an unknown animal fat, or yeah. if you're dealing with um, like bears, for example, where it could be good, could be bad from bear to bear. Exactly. Yeah. So your nose, your nose is not going to lie. I'm, I'm genuinely surprised that I smell that bear fat right now. <laughs> oh, it, dude. We're now it's, it could have turned like it's been, like you said, it's been sitting since September, right? So it's probably it? turned. AJ's got it. I tightened the hell out of that. Cause it also had to go to in my airport luggage. Oh yeah. Super fun. Maybe do like the oh. science thing where you waft it. Yeah, I do the science. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I'd waft it. I don't think it's gonna be good. I don't it, think it got good. It might have turned. Mmm, smells fishy. Fish, fishy. Yes. Okay. You can so smell it. the fishy smell is interesting because it shouldn't have had access me... to fish. It should not have where it was. No. But but here's a fun fact. Here's science. Um. <laughs> Oh God! That really? The science yeah, that's is, oh, um, oh God. Rancid fat takes what? on the fishy, fishy <laughs> smells. Dude, hold on. Woo! Man, well, remember when you guys are you guys are a little weak stomach? Yeah, like, we are. Like that's yeah. Yeah, we. But, are. Oh, dude. But AJ, you were all... fine. What's wrong with you? I I didn't think it was that bad. Yeah, when we're gutting something. Yeah, that. there's that smell that I can't do. I can't. Oh, oh, you don't. He doesn't like the irony smell. When you're gutting a deer, okay. I like that smell. <laughs> I bathe in it. But yes. Okay, sorry, sorry, Hank. We we digress. Okay, so what's your? Th- I also got. It's rancid. Yeah, rancid. There we go. That's a good. Rancid's term. a f- great word for that. So now what? I uh, I mean, throw it away. I I'd bake coyotes with it. Okay. Damn. <laughs> we could. I mean, it, like, put it in a you frame. really don't want to make soap even with rancid fat. Yeah. It's just like that stink is going to hang on it. But and so wh- you're going to wash yourself and you're going to smell like lavender and rancid bear fat. <laughs> I would like to say real quick, though, that smells like it did the next morning. Okay. So I, I do want to say that that is exactly what I smelled the next day. 
interesting because that fishy smell is rancidity. So it got rancid. I wonder if he swapped fats on us. He might have. Oh, some trickery. How did it happen the next day, dude? What? What? I, mean, what, I thought the, the next day. Them Amish are wily. No, it reeked the second day. <laughs> okay. It reeked the second. It smelled it just like that the second day. And here is the problem: the first day it smelled so good that when I went and picked it up the next day, which was that guy's idea. I opened it up to brag to everyone about how good it smelled. Mm -hmm. So I took a huge whiff to prove, because everyone thought I was trying to bait him. I, to prove my point, I took a huge whiff and almost threw up because of it. It was and, bad. Yeah. So if this was a good fat that's not rancid, would it, what, what, what would it smell like? To then? me, it smelled like pork fat the first day yeah, when we were cooking fat. it. It smelled like okay. a ba a not, not quite ham, not quite bacon, not right. that good, but softer version okay. of that would be the way I would describe it. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, in my experience, um, bear fat is structurally the same is structurally the same as pork fat and can have the same range of smells. It felt I I would I would I would agree with the the experience I had. So, it turning overnight when he said he was just going to I don't think it turned overnight. I mean, that's just that's suspicious to me. Make, I do wonder if he switched it out. Now, what if he had bad stuff in the jar? And he's like, he oh, I'll that. just give him some of my – I already have some because they said they do this. Oh. What if he's like – Adding to it? Oh, they didn't get that much. I'll help him. Oh, yeah. That's possible. Oh, man. There's too many variables now. A lot it, of variables. It, well, we can't text him. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's that. And he won't hear us now. <laughs> he's like, you guys have weak stomachs for one. I was like, yeah, that <laughs> – it's pretty bad. Listen, Hank Shaw, I feel like if you smelled that thing, you'd be in our boat. <laughs> like, oh, you can do this with it. Pretty sure not. Yeah, you know, he's I'm a commercial <laughs> fisherman. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, okay. Greenway Outdoors is brought to you by Ram Trucks, built to serve. Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. Your adventure starts here. Savage Arms, better comes standard. Nosler Ammunition, world's finest bullets, ammunition, and brass. Boss Shot Shells. Superior made and American made. Carlson's Choke Tubes, the only choke tube we've ever purchased. Onyx Hunt, know where you stand. If you want to be here, it all starts here. At Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, we have the widest selection of the quality brands you love to get you outdoors. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, our friendly, knowledgeable outfitters will help you find the right products for your next trip. Shop with confidence with our low price guarantee. Plus, club members save even more on great gear with exclusive member pricing. Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's, voted America's best outdoor retailer. Legends aren't born, they're created. Introducing Impulse from Savage, the all-new American-made straight-pull bolt-action rifle. Unmatched innovation, fast reloads, maximized efficiency, repeatable accuracy. Welcome to American Straight-Pull, only from Savage. Okay, so going back, um, 
with the with the woodcock, you said with an you were talking about what to do with it when you're working with a new animal fat and that sort of thing. How would you rate it on a scale of one to ten as far as the flavor of what it added or took away from a meat? What would you what would you rate it one to ten? I think it adds to the character of woodcock, but I think one of the things that is polarizing about that bird is it tastes like something. And so a skinless grouse, everybody loves it because it's essentially a stand-in for chicken. Yeah. Whereas a woodcock is never going to be like that. I mean, the only way I can describe to somebody what a woodcock tastes like is to give them examples of other animals that are equally obscure because and it doesn't help them at all, right? Right. <laughs> so it's like, only it's a little bit like a it's like a snipe mixed with a dove, you know? I'm like that doesn't help most people, you know? Sure. I um, it, you know, and it's it's not every animal's job to taste like a cow or a chicken either. You know what I mean? Right. They can, they can have their own profiles. I sometimes what I'll say is like, you know, whenever I'm trying to describe a meat to someone, I'll be like, describe ham to me, <laughs> right? You can't because it is its own thing. So like, you wouldn't describe it as turkey. You wouldn't describe it as chicken. You wouldn't describe it as uh, beef. Pork. You know, you wouldn't. Like you wouldn't even describe it as like a pork roast. No, no, you wouldn't. So it's like you just have to let it be its own thing. And I think mm-hmm. I think woodcock is that, um, and like you said, if you overcook it, it picks up a flavor profile of something people traditionally don't necessarily like, which would be, or they don't think they like. Yeah, is, I mean, what was liver. here's an interesting thing from grouse camp. So, the hunters would bring in their birds, and we would process their birds to some extent, and then I mean, anything that we were going to cook, we processed, and we sent them home with the rest. Um, but. What was fascinating about woodcock was I could put out 10 pounds of grouse and they would eat 10 pounds of grouse. Right. I could put out, let's say there were 20 hunters in camp. I could put out 20 whole woodcock, you know, roasted perfectly with a sauce, whatever. And like one, one per person and eight of them would come back. Really? But that's not enough. No. So it's like people just, some people aren't liking it or some people. They will not eat it. It's not that they don't like it. They don't try it. Oh. And they're especially, and I have to say, older white men. Yeah. Where's my steak? I'm like, well, yeah. bro, you're not getting a steak. This is what you get. And and virtually always it was it were it were people who had closed their minds to the, to the possibility that this bird could taste good. And it, it, that actually was frustrating to me. Sure. Um, I'm happy to say it was a minority. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. Yeah. That. I mean, grow up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> grow up. I. How? I mean, to me, it's like if you don't. It, and this is also a minority, but it was a. But it. It kind of shocked me. Like there was a, more than a few people who did not eat their birds at all. What? So like I just like to watch the dogs work. I'm like, well, then. Oh. Take them. We yeah. Ca- we call those people. It actually has nothing to do with the load itself. But we call those people twenty eight gators. It's like the it's like the people we we joke about like um You are not wrong. They did predominantly I bet they gators. did. I bet they did. You know why? It's it's like when we were up in actually Maine for a different hunt. We were talking about both Maine hunts, and this episode was in season one on History Channel, so you can watch this one now. It was a moose hunt, episode nine. We we're up there and we we're talking to everyone and they're talking about like what rounds to use for the moose hunt. And they're like you don't need anything bigger than a 243, you know, and they're just saying nonsense. And it's like, I could, could a perfectly play shot with a 243 kill a, a moose. Sure. But is that the, the, the size caliber gun that you should probably be using? No, 
You know what I mean? So it's like, it's like whoever can use the smallest thing and have the hardest situation is naturally just better in every way, and you should know it. And they're just so great. And it's it's it. We can't stand it. So when we were in Moose Camp, we laid there at night because it's like gets dark at like five. And we're in bed at night, and we talk for like three hours, just coming up with different twenty-eight gauge lines, <laughs> like like. And then we called those people twenty-eight gauges. We're gonna make a shirt where all the lines are on it, like in a big twenty-eight. So you'll probably enjoy it. We'll send you one when we do it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's our. Term. I, li- I like that. That's like our that. term for those people. I'm sure that happened quite a bit. Well, I guess I I'm, I can't be sure, but like we're, y- you're doing something that's easily critiqued by people, and then. As you said, like you have the complainers or the people who are like, I'm not doing that. I'm not eating that or I don't eat the birds. That's crazy. Was it at least one guy in the group that was always like that? Because it seems like everywhere we go, there's always one person that's got to be like, oh, you didn't know that? Well, you don't know the, anything. The know-it-all. Yeah. Oh, well, those are different types of people. But yeah. like, so the, <laughs> they weren't always the same person. So, yeah, there's the – I mean, anybody who's been to any number of hunting camps has know there's the one-upper. Oh. Um, who is who has done everything that you've done but better? Yep, um, he's got a two eight stamped right on his head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's um, there's the the guy who just likes to shoot them. Um, and I wish to say that that was a, a myth, but unfortunately, I've seen it too many times. Right. Um, then there's you know there's kind of everything in between, but those are the two that we're talking about, and they're not always the same person. Sure. Um, but. They can be, and that makes a special person. That's the worst person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it's interesting, too, is because, like, you're really well-educated on what you do. You know, you, you're very passionate about cooking. You spend a lot of time focused on cooking. You have a ton of experience in cooking. Like you were talking about the, the leg of lamb thing. Um, mm-hmm. But when you wanted me to describe you, you just wanted to be called a uh, cookbook, you know, re- author, and uh, which is obviously, like, a humble representation of what you've done. And so you're probably like by you saying that to me led me to believe you're probably a pretty humble guy. It's tough in those situations when you have that one upper or you have these people that think they know everything that don't and you just want to smash them. But you don't want to break your mold of your your humbleness. So you're like in this bind of wanting to be like, dude, your leg of lamb sucks. But you don't want (laughs) to say it because you don't want to be that guy. Well, you guys all appear to be under 40. Yeah. So. Yeah, Ryan's like twelve. There's a, a shift change occurs as you get older, to where you just you just let him talk. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm when I was your age, you know, it was definitely a thing of like, no man, you're wrong, and <laughs> and just like it just I don't have the energy for that anymore. It just doesn't help. Um, I, I I would much rather do something and and you know work through action than in words and if somebody wants to talk for a long time then that's fine sure um i just <laughs> i can just i can move past it now and and i'm actually really grateful for that because 20 years ago nah i'd be arguing with you know a glass of bourbon in my hand and, yeah and now i'm just like you do you man i'm just gonna go in the yeah. kitchen and clean up eat your liver <laughs> you overcook it all you want um, a piece of meat that I'm really passionate about, we've mentioned it a few times, it's my favorite. Um, and it wasn't always. Well, I got into hunting as a kid. My dad taught me deer hunting, and he taught me bluegill fishing because that's what he did. Everything else, the other host on the show, Jeffrey, who right now is a little doll in that chair because he's not here today. <laughs> so we put this weird-ass doll in his chair. 
Uh, but he, uh, him and I grew up together. We, we didn't have a ton. So from the age of 16 on, we just pooled all of our money together so we could buy our first duck boat. We both put in 100 bucks. We get a $200 boat that's a piece of crap, but we got it. And then we would just constantly do that to like be able to do new outdoor activities. And we found that by splitting the cost of everything, we could accomplish more. So that's pretty much what we've done our whole lives all the way till now having our History Channel show. And basically, the biggest one that was interesting to us was duck hunting just because it was so different than deer hunting and bluegill fishing. Like, obviously, you can be so social. You can be talking. All the different species and the possibilities, all the different flavors, all the different stuff. It was just, to me, wanting to get a hands on a duck was just so cool. And um, we would get them, and the first thing that we would do is, like, we would read online that you breast them. So, like, we're kids. Our dads didn't do this. So, you know, we, we don't we don't know any better. And we would just, you know, obviously, like, skin them and take out the breasts. You'd have the, the, the fat on there. And I would take the fat off of mallards and stuff because that's what I read in the forums to do, right? That's what I, that's what I read to do. Um, so I just didn't know any better. Um, and at the time, hunting forums and stuff were really big online. So you're just in this, like, this room of, like, everyone saying the same thing. So you're not learning anything new. And also, were you, were you in a, on that refuge chat? Probably, refuge forum? probably, <laughs> probably oh. Oh, the most toxic duck hunting place on the planet. <laughs> no, it, no, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And like as a kid, like trying to learn, I like started to see trends. Like if you ask a question like this, you're going to get crucified. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, if I put my ducks in this arrangement, is this OK? You. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, like, oh my god, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, and that was the truth. And then at the time too, um, heavy metal, Environmental was a, a it's a, it's a oh, shock yeah, and shell that. company. Those guys were all paid to be in these forums. Oh, so like man. everything you said, they're like, well, if you tried the shotgun show, it helped. And you're like, I asked about what to soak ducks in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like they would just push the hell out of that ammo in there. Um, and yeah, it was just like, it was just kind of funny that that's like something you ran into anyhow. So I would breast him out and stuff and I would cook him and I'm like, this isn't very good. You know, it just wasn't yeah. great. And then as I got older, I've taken to knowing a little bit more about the duck and something I'm so passionate about. We made a video out of it is how to dry age duck. Mm. And what I found, and again, I am not a chef. So I'm like navigating these waters where you've probably cooked 10,000 ducks and I've cooked yeah, you'd 300, probably, you know, he's, he might rip it apart. Yeah. And that's what I'm kind of saying is like, I'm willing to be ripped apart. I have no ego, so you can beat me up. But here's what I've taken to doing. And here's what I've noticed um, okay. is I was I, you kind of taste like a pondy flavor pond pond with a Y at the end. Um, when I was cooking ducks the way that I used to, it was kind of it just wasn't great. I was probably overcooking them. And, 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 and I tried bacon wrapped and then they were a little bit better, but it's just a little bit of an off flavor still, um, probably still overcooking them, you know? Um, <laughs> and then I took to, cause like, honestly, I, I like my steaks like medium well. So I know I'm a piece of shit. Everyone yells at you for it, but that's like how I like it, especially a ribeye where the fat really gets cooked in. I just, that's what I like. So I thought that's what I wanted with duck and, 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 and. so anyhow. I took to, I read about this one thing about dry aging it. It was in an article in a Ducks Unlimited magazine uh, back in the day. So I was like, I'm going to try it. So my mom didn't love this, by the way. But I, so I plucked the entire bird, which was significantly more work, but then you felt really accomplished at the end of it. And then I cut out the spine 
and then there was like a, a gap, like uh, let's say about four inches across up the whole back of it because I pulled out the spine, pulled out the guts, rinsed it off, patted it dry, and then I, it looked like a little rotisserie chicken. They look like hell at first, but then you, I would put it in the fridge on a rack, and basically the cavity would, the open cavity would be facing down on the rack, and the little rotisserie chicken would be sitting up top. And then after like two days in the fridge, the skin would kind of tighten up on it, and then it would start to look nice again. It would actually look way better the third or fourth day in the fridge than it would the first day. And I would leave it in there for like a week. And then I would cut off the breast and the leg in a way that they would stay attached by the fat. And then I would soak mm -hmm. them in orange juice for like 12 hours. I would take them out, pat them dry, and then I would cook them like that. And I would sear it with the fat down first and then flip it over and do the meat side. And then I would put it in the oven for like 10 minutes and then it would be like medium on the inside. And it was the greatest thing I ever had in my life. So obviously I couldn't have messed it up too bad. But it was a completely different flavor profile. And so then I tried it without the orange juice to see if it was just the orange juice was the culprit of the change. And it wasn't. It was still way better um, than it was when I had cooked it, you know, the traditional way before. So I guess for me, I was wondering if you could, I believe I know that the, the muscle break, what people would say is the muscle would break down. What I read in that article, the muscle would break down and the blood would release. The thing was, I never really saw any blood in the pan. And that's like the thing I never mention or never talk about is like, they say the blood gets released and all of that and it would drip down in the pan. That's why you put a pan under it. And there would be like three drops down there. So it wasn't like blood was coming, pouring out of this thing, even after a week or eight days. So what is really happening in that process? Did I do it right? Is that smart? Or is there like a pro tip that you would recommend changing? Sure. We can break this down piece by piece. Um, Hondi flavor in ducks is almost entirely a function of the duck. Um, it's like the bears and pigs we were talking about. They're yeah. omnivores. Yeah. So duck hunters out there know that there's a huge difference between a bull sprig and a, and a hen spoonie. Sure. Um, so the diet of the different species varies dramatically. And then the diet of the same species in different places can vary dramatically. I mean, a great example of that are, are Gadwall, uh, where I used to live in California. So Gadwall north of Sacramento are in rice fields. And they're not only perfectly good ducks, they are sought after ducks. Right. Gadwall south of Sacramento, uh, where they are in natural marshes, uh, are often called gagwalls because they eat greenery and that greenery ferments in their guts and they stink when you cut them open mm -hmm. and they tend to not put on any fat. Yeah. We, we so have, same, we kind of have bird. the greener ones here. We have marsh gadwall. Yes. So you're going to, you're, you're going to have your local conditions that, that turn to her and what is the best species and blah, blah, blah. So let's just assume that you know that. Okay. Um, and I will let, let me, a little side note. There are a few birds that will never steer you wrong. Mallard. Wood ducks never steer you wrong. Pintail never steer you wrong. Green and blue winged teal never steer, steer you wrong. And speckle belly goose never steer you wrong. So mallards Those can? Those birds, huh? Mallards can then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've seen mallards eating dead salmon. Oh. <laughs> Man, yeah, those little I mean, stinkers! I trusted them. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, and I, I've 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 shot mallards that had nothing but tadpoles in their gullet. So okay. Um, that said, mallards in general are pretty good, but sure. 
I, you know, you, you never get know. that one hood rat <laughs> one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I, I shot one that was, you know, full of acorns and tadpoles. I okay. Mean, it was okay. But I mean, I, it was good to know. You're right. So let's just say you had a, you, you shot a good duck, whatever a good duck is in your area. Okay. Uh, and you did that. The, the process of plucking and then opening it up and letting it dry out in the fridge is really what you're doing. You're not, the, the blood release is just a bizarre, I don't understand that. That's, that doesn't make any sense. Okay. Um, where's it going to go to? It's not like you cut something and it's flushing out. Besides blood is in the circulatory system, not in the muscle fiber. Like it's just bizarre. Um, so it's just some people who make statements like that just don't understand science, which Got is it. pretty common. However, what's going on is the bird is in a cold, dry environment. Refrigerators are cold and they're dry. So that's why you have the crisper uh, in your in your refrigerator because it's less dry. Um, okay. Those, those crisper things for your yeah. vegetables. Yeah, at the bottom where you can pick. Mm-hmm, they're smaller containers, with, so the the moisture that is being released by the thing that's in the crisper is going to stay in that smaller container as opposed into the larger the larger fridge. Okay. So if you sit something in the larger fridge, it's going to dry out, and sometimes it's a good thing in the case of your duck. Um, you could actually keep it for maybe 10 days or two weeks if you put it in the crisper uh, because it's not going to lose moisture as fast. And the thing about actual dry aging is it's an enzymatic process that requires time. So with beef and any red meat like venison or elk or something, you really are talking two weeks minimum for true dry aging. And I, I actually have an, a big article about it on the website that goes through all the science, um, but I'm just giving you the summary right Yeah, here. yeah, yeah, I know, much appreciated. Um, and that same enzymatic action happens at the, with birds as well. But the thing about birds, um, typically, you know, if you, if you hang them in the feathers, you can accelerate it safely if you keep the temperature below 60 degrees. So you can hang at 50 degrees, which is way higher than refrigerator temperature, for quite a while if you have something like a grouse or a pheasant or a skinny duck. See, the, you get you get in trouble with ducks in in the sense that if it's a nice fat Fatty, duck, like yeah. a big northern mallard, that fat can go rancid while it's hanging. So I tend to not do traditional hanging like I might with a grouse or a pheasant. Um, so your method actually works pretty well for that. So yeah, you plucked it probably early, and that's fine. Um, but the, the week long aging process will make it more tender and it will concentrate that flavor to make it taste more savory for lack of a better term. Now the orange juice, the orange juice is that all you're doing is you're adding sugar and, and acidity to the, to the meat. It's essentially a, a marinade or it's the same process that ceviche works on. It probably turned the exposed meat gray, um, mm -hmm. because that's what it does. Yep. yep. Um, and I don't love acidifying red meats, uh, but that's a personal choice. Lots okay. of people do. What don't you like about um, it? Because of that gray nature to it, okay. um, it, it's yes, it adds some flavor to it, but it also makes it harder to brown successfully because you're you're denaturing the external layer of the meat with, with the acidity. That's what it does. So right. like uh, an acidic marinade does not tenderize the interior of any meat, period. End of story. I'm going to say that one more time. The uh, An acidic marinade does not tenderize the interior of any meat. He's like, I've so heard enough of there, it. And you believe that, it is 100% false. Okay. 
salt, a brine, does penetrate the interior of meat. But what that does is it allows a piece of meat to retain more moisture when you cook it. All meat loses moisture when it's cooked. Sure. Brined meat loses less. So that gives you that, you know, it's not necessarily more tender, but it's less dry. Marinades only affect the, the outer layer. It doesn't mean it doesn't, they're not, they're worthless, but you cannot take like a deer shoulder and marinate it and then put it on the grill and eat it medium rare. Like, good luck. <laughs> it's not going to work. Right. Um, so the the presence of the orange juice, uh, it adds flavor, it adds that orangey flavor, it adds sugar, which caramelizes, and it kind of counteracts a little bit the the wetness of the outside of the meat, which which that hurts your ability to brown, but sugars brown much easier. So you kind of got to push pull there, and it, that's why it kind of ended up real nice. Now your your fillet method, um, actually my ex um, my ex does that method, and she loves it. I don't. And you're like, that's why that. I left her. No, just get. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 can't say that was it. Um, <laughs> But she does that method, and she's an excellent duck hunter, and she swears by it because okay. for the same reason you do, because you've got that leg-breast combination. It's attached by that fat in the center, and you can put a brick or a, or a bacon press over it and keep it flat. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good, solid method. I just don't do it because I tend to make um, a whole dish of just legs or a whole dish of just breasts. So it's just the difference in how I cook. There's no right or wrong about it. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's pretty interesting. Getting but... yeah, it's super interesting. So the the process that I'm doing is drying out the what what's actually happening in my refrigerator. Just to circle back, is it's becoming more tender, and the flavors becoming more savory. Yes, but there's no real change, like other than that. Not I mean not a, I mean you would notice if you set it up. With your humidity was right and your temperature was right, mm -hmm. you could dry age a duck for three weeks. Okay. Um, you can't really do that in a regular fridge. No, no. Uh, you if gotta... you had something like a dry ager, yeah. or if you had your own setup, yeah, you damn we right. Gotta get you one of those. It's amazing. We gotta get one of those um, sponsors. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I actually have one, uh, and I like it a lot. Which and I, which I bought one? It. It's the dry ager. It's okay. just the small, the smallest one because that's all I could afford. But uh, but it, it it works really well and I like it. How, sm how small is the smallest one? He goes a little bigger in that um, room. It's, you're like in. The, it's about the size of a apartment uh, refrigerator. Like a really big dorm fridge. Okay, I knew it. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. So yeah. it's still decent. Yeah, you, you couldn't put a whole deer in though, is what he's saying. Yeah. Unless no, you like I mean, and you could cut up a, you could cut up a doe and put it in there. Question for you too. Um mm -hmm. people used to like this is what I've heard. Um one of the things that was in those forums back in the day, and I never had the balls to do it, but they said on like the colder months or whatever, they would just tie the head of a duck to a string, hang it outside, and when the duck rotted off, like the head fell off and the body fell, then it was done being dry aged. What is the what is the mindset and philosophy behind that? <laughs> no, okay, I'm not kidding. This, me, that's a normal like you've heard it, right? Riddle me this, Batman. Yeah. Was that person saying that you, he did it? Yes. Or was he saying that somebody else did it? He was saying he did it his whole life, and anyone who doesn't do it's a piece of garbage. He was a 28-gauger through and through. Classic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so – But I heard that a lot very... of places. It was also on Duck Dynasty. 
There's also it's very ne- rare to hear that someone actually does it because the usual is I heard some other insert other group here, Ubers or, you know, French or, you know, Cajuns or whatever that they do it. So, um, you've heard it. If though. you're con- oh, yeah, 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 for sure. If your conditions are right, Perfect. yes, it works. Um, it's a thing that the English call high game. And we're at low game it is over a, here. <laughs> it's essentially controlled rot. And right. it can go haywire if your temperatures are above about high 50s. Like listeria starts to form at, at 60 degrees. So if your temperatures get above 60 degrees, um, that's bad. That's really bad. You know, and it's super no bueno. Um, but if you're hanging around, like, like, like I'm in St. Paul right now and the temperatures are perfect for, for hanging and dry aging. Cause it's going down about freezing at night, maybe a little lower. And then the days are in their forties. So that's your sweet spot for doing that sort of thing where the bird's not frozen solid because you got to avoid that too. Right. And it's not getting so hot that you're going to get really nasty bacterial infections. <laughs> so <clears throat> yes, that's real dry aging. Um, the feather, leaving the feathers on keeps the skin supple. So if you, one of the things you notice in your week long um, duck aging is that the skin gets pretty dry mm-hmm. um, and it gets blotchy. So that works for about a week. But if you did, if you were to do that for two weeks, you're going to get run into some issues Okay. because the skin's going to get just too dry, which is why you keep the feathers on. So one thing that we have done in the past is to hang the birds whole. And I use that. I use the term hang loosely because we really just put them in the beer fridge. Okay. <laughs> hole, hole it in the feathers for three or four or five days. And then that's at refrigerator temperature. Okay. And then we pluck and then we might keep it in the, in the kitchen fridge for another three, four or five days. When, so you when are you gutting them? Period. When are you gutting uh, uh, When you pluck them. So, so they, you're they, they're pl- holing in the feathers for three, four, five days in the refrigerator. Then you take them out and pluck them and gut them and get them ready like you did. And then they can sit in the kitchen fridge for another three, four, five days. Okay. Yeah, Ted Nugent that, told me that he um, he takes the birds whole, hangs them by the mm-hmm. neck in his walk-in uh, cooler, and leaves them in there for 10 days. And then does, he said he does that with doves. He said he does that with everything. Wow. Does well, not gut them. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you can't. The, the, you're going to get in trouble with turkeys and geese. Okay. Because they're bigger. The, they have enough thermal inertia, which is another you know meat science term, that they're going to retain so much heat that if you don't gut them, you're in trouble. So it only really um, works with the small ones, then. I, I don't know. I mean, it works with kind of every game bird in America that's smaller than a goose or a or a, or a, uh, a turkey. So a big fat mallard would be fine. Yeah, I mean, if it's a really fat mallard, I might be a little nervous about it because um, if you kept it at refrigerator temperature, you're fine. Okay. But if you're if you're doing it like classic hanging temperature, yeah, like 50, 55, mm, the fat could go off on you, and that's okay. a shame. What's um, a what's a sign? So where, I want to like, I want to say one thing about Ted, um, and the only thing I want to say about Ted Nugent is that he's incorrect about doves. Okay. He's, because they're it's one dove in a thousand that's more than a year old. So the thing about dry aging is you dry age things like that specifically to tenderize them. Mm. I have eaten 
at least a thousand dubs. I've never found a top dub. Me neither. So um, there's, I mean, I'm not saying he's a terrible human being for that, um, but there's, it's, it's useless. There's no need to. Okay. Uh, I've had I've had tough quail, but I've never had tough dove. So that's a case where, sure, fine, but it doesn't do any. It's not doing you any good. Okay. Not like a duck or or, so, or a pheasant. So doves clean right away. I do. Yeah. Okay. okay. Pigeons too. Do you, do you soak them in anything specifically? Nah. Doves are doves are really clean and mild. I like them a lot. Yeah, me too. They're good. Uh, we can't hunt them in Michigan, if you can believe that. I can. I do. You, do you want to know why? Uh, they put it up to a public vote, and it got. It, we didn't win. I know that. Yes, but the the. So that is part of. Uh, I wrote. I'll send you a piece about this. I wrote about it actually. Um, Sick. Yeah. The it's not specific to Michigan. It's specific to Michigan, uh, to the Northeast. So, about 120 years ago, there was a guy named uh, William Hornady. Like Hornady bullets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I believe it's actually the same family. I was gonna say that's the is, right name. Which is which is ironic. Yeah. Um, but this is the guy who is best known for putting an African pygmy in the zoo. <laughs> yeah, a person. He put a person in a zoo. So like it's not rough. exactly the most enlightened human being on the planet. However, Jeez. people people are complicated. So his, his the other thing that he did is he was a, a um he was a he was one of the strongest advocates for sportsmanlike hunting. So, on his plus his downside is he viewed Africans as not quite human. On the plus side, he um, he is one of the guys responsible for seasons and bag limits in the end of commercial hunting. So part of that can't win them all, I guess. <laughs> Just, I know, you know, yeah. part of that campaign, and then here's where we get to his dark side again is part of that campaign was to to make uh, doves a songbird because, and I quote, uh, greasy Italians, rednecks, and uppity Negroes were shooting <laughs> all the songbirds. So basically it was his attack on hunting doves was explicitly racist. Yeah. And, and so he got everyone in the Northeast – to declare the dove a songbird, and it, and it extended out into kind of greater Yankeedom, which includes Michigan. Yeah. Um, and then, and so to this day, the the origin of the dove hunting ban in that part of the of the United States is rooted in some really serious, explicit racism, and it's fascinating to me. We should make that, that we should we should really make that case in court and be like, if we can't hunt doves, you're racist, Governor. Whitmere. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, I mean it's, it's it's really interesting because it was all about like keeping non-rich white guys from hunting. Wow, that's we're non-rich white guys. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. You know? And so I mean, it works. Also, like, <laughs> yeah. 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 it works. So let's let's take that aside for a second. But also, like I I actually was uh, lucky enough to be on the very first Minnesota dove hunt twenty nice. years ago. Nice. Uh, when they reopened the season in Minnesota, eh, it was okay. Like that's the thing. It's like. Um, the northern tier states don't have good dove hunting because doves don't like the cold. Right. Now, Eurasians do. Mm -hmm. You know, the Eurasian collar doves don't care. Um, you know, I, I, I see them around here even in the wintertime. But the morning doves, 
they're out of here. Yeah. First first touch of cold. So even if you had a season, I don't know. I wouldn't go to you know to Minnesota or Michigan or Wisconsin to hunt doves. And like, September maybe, maybe get one day in September though. We would we would rack them up here. Yeah, they, we have. Would you though? We have a huge. Po- we have a pretty high population. I, here. I feel like it's not like the other states where they're sitting over a sunflower seed, uh, sunflower field and shooting fifty of them every day. But yeah. I, I, I feel real confident that I could at least put a couple strings of fifteen a day. You'd, you'd walk away happy with what you got. Yeah, it, it okay. might be the area we're in, but we yeah, also like. Be. We get to exp- we've experienced every section of Michigan and what it has to offer, so we would know where to go, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but they're definitely here for a while. Um, they're probably here. For me, here. I go to like Oklahoma or Texas or Arizona. I'm sure it's way better. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's way better. But I think it's also the fact that like. We see them enough that it upsets us that we can't shoot them. Yeah, I I believe you. I you know. believe, can you can you shoot Eurasians? Uh, Eurasian is is that a pigeon? It's a the Eurasian collar dove. Um, I know rock doves are pigeons. Yes, so the Eurasians are. I'm sure you have them because they <laughs> some chucklehead let them loose in Florida in like the 1970s, and they have kind of invaded the rest of the United States. What do they look? What do they look like? I'm gonna look it up. Like real a quick. dove. They're okay. a big dove. They're a big dove. They're lighter in color, and they have a black band on the back of their necks. And they sound like they kind of sound like um, like dying penguins. They're like, ah. <laughs> oh yeah, and, okay. And they hang out. Um, I've, they I've, hang out by structure, so they occupy the same biological niche as pigeons. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I I don't know that I've ever seen this before. They're around. I've seen them in Michigan. I, I, I've seen them around Lansing. Maybe I, I think maybe it's like for a morning dove. Yeah, they, they. I'm like, that's a big morning dove. That could have been exactly. The you know what I mean? Like that could have, because I've seen morning doves where I'm like, holy hell! And then it probably wasn't. Yeah. You know, it's but I didn't that. know it because I couldn't shoot them and look at them. You know what they say? Shoot them and then figure out what it is. You know? They that's the John Jay, <laughs> John Jay Autobahn method. Isn't yeah. it? We we do ground, have an open season checking. on pigeon. We do. Yeah, we do. We can shoot rock doves here though. We can shoot pigeons. So you can like. I love shooting pigeons because they're I love eating pretty pigeons. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh well, we we did an episode. Um, the episode sucked actually, but it was like season <laughs> two, two or three. I think it was two. It was rough, man. We couldn't buy a pigeon. Like oh, no matter yeah. what we did, everywhere we went, it just didn't work out. And but if you can make friends with a farmer, and dairies, uh, yeah, the, especially the dairy, yeah, the dairy farms, they're loaded with them. They're loaded with yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, I love pigeons. Like I. I, I just, you know, because they age well too, actually. I'll actually, ha- I will hang them for a couple, two, three days because pigeons, unlike doves, can live a long time. Okay. Like like a, a, a standard pigeon, it's not crazy to get a two and three, four or five year old pigeon. Wow. So you hang those guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they pluck super easy. Like there's zero reason to not pluck a pigeon because it's just the feathers practically fall off them. The Greenway Outdoors is brought to you by Ram Trucks, built to serve bass pro shops and cabela's your adventure starts here savage arms nosler ammunition boss shot shells wilderness athlete fuel for the rugged tracker boats fish the finest eagle fishing designed for the savvy angler rufus teague barbecues snacks and spices Rectech grills it's more than a grill it's a way of life sea do make your own waves lem products motivating people to hunt process and prepare their own food quiet cat the leader in electronic bikes for hunting fishing camping and exploring consistency That's what you aim for with every practice shot. So when you're out in the field, 
you get that same consistency every shot. With Carlson's choke tubes, consistency is what you'll get. Our choke tubes are long-lasting, high-quality, and made right here in the USA. Carlson's choke tubes, pattern tested, hunter approved. Find out more at choketube.com. Are you anxious to get going? Knowing that the clock is ticking and time truly is the most precious commodity in the world? Then you, my friend, are in good company. Last question for you, because um, mm-hmm. we've been drilling you. Sorry. Um, the answer is B. Okay, good. No you're shit. Right. <laughs> All right, Ryan, you heard him. You're fired. No, I'm just kidding. It's like, what? <laughs> uh, okay, so for a for a deer, let's say you shot a uh, let's say let's say you're Jeffrey, and he just shot a 160 pound doe, and she ended up being about five and a half years old, mm-hmm. white tail. He could hang it for seven days. Do you reckon mm-hmm. that's how long he had? Then he butchered it mm-hmm. in a cooler in a controlled cooler at forty degrees. Mm-hmm. A little warm, but okay. Yeah, it's just that's how it worked out. But is that what you? So let's say, I guess what's the ideal situation? Someone needs to know is like, if I can only hang my deer for four days, does it make a difference, or does it have yes. to be two weeks? Does it have to be if if I can do two days? Is that better? Is it you know? Because a lot of people too is like we shoot we shot our moose in the field. And we had to break it. We had to debone it to get it out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like that's what we had to do. So I guess there's two questions then. Cause number one, first question is, talk to me about the aging process of a deer. What happens, you know, day one to four? Is there a point in doing it if we only got two days? Is it like every sure. minute counts? Or is it like if you can't hit 10 days, don't bother? And the second question is for, for people like us who got a moose and you're like, hey, man, I had to debone it in the field like an hour after I shot it. It barely got into rigor mortis. What am I looking at? Um, what can what can that person do after the fact to try and help? Okay. Ooh, all right. Yeah, so, it's too hey, big. Strap direction. yourself in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so number one, the the let's deal with short term aging. So if you can only age a short period of time you absolutely want to get the animal through rigor mortis, which can take 48 to 72 hours. So if you can hang the animal for 48 to 72 hours and then butcher, that's fine. The the other thing is if you're in the field and you don't have that opportunity, cut the animal into very large pieces, like a quartering it um, is pretty normal. And then uh, if you can, and this is this is this is a reach, and this is an ask, but it's going to say keep the bone. You asked me about the ideal. Yeah. So the the ideal would be to use a bone saw and cut the backstrap from the hips to the end of the backstrap over the ribs, and keep it on the bone. Mm-hmm. That would be the ideal. You know, obviously it's hard to do if you're in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to do mm-hmm. with the moose, but but if you have like ye old whitetail in Michigan. That's a really good thing to do, and I'll tell you why. Because if you are going to uh, age the animal, 
especially if you're going to actually dry age for you know two weeks or, or longer. By keeping everything on the bone, you have less meat exposed that later has to get trimmed off. So with the case of the backstrap, you've got the the top of the ribs and the spine that are going to protect the, the backstrap while it ages. And then when you are done aging and you cut it off the, the bone, you have that very fresh cut there that's already dry aged. So you're in great shape. So your meat loss is going to be significantly lower if you're going to do that. Another point, and this is important, because space is often at an issue, the only things that really truly benefit from dry aging are those cuts that you then cook medium to medium rare. So that means backstrap and hind legs, and I'm not talking shanks. Shanks, shoulder, ribs, neck, none of that really truly benefits from dry aging. It, it's not going to hurt it, but why? Because you're going to slow cook those anyway. Mm -hmm. The entire point of dry aging is to tenderize and to in increase flavor. So yeah, sure, you could dry age, you know, uh, like a fur on deer in 30 degrees, 31 degrees, and you'll be fine. I mean, go for it. But that's not everybody. So if you have to make choices, dry age those cuts that are going to get cooked medium rare. Okay. So um, your your so prime you've got cuts the basically. One or two huh? Your prime cuts basically. Exactly. So you've got the one or two days to get it through rigor. You've got then you can go as long as you you dare, uh, depending on your conditions. And then if you have to make decisions, uh, work with your prime cuts. Now. I want to, you know, your situation. The other option, and this happens a lot, especially if you're in, you know, if you're lucky or you're not in the backcountry or whatever. If you can get on that animal right when it dies and start butchering then, it has the awesomely named meat science term of hot boning, <laughs> which I never, I'm yeah. my inner 12 year old always laughs at. Yeah, that no, one. no, I get it. Uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> But it, what it means is that you're cutting an animal before it gets into yeah. rigor. It took and Ryan. So, it took Ryan a while to get it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> and he's married. Um, <laughs> oh, ow! <laughs> Painful. Anyway, so you get on um, him before rigor mortis. Yes. So, and this is exceptionally important with the backstrap. So, because if I'm in the backcountry, there's just no way that you're going to be able to, you know, stand there because it could be grizzly bears um, and, and, and slowly butcher this animal out in the middle of a field or a forest or something. However, if you can get on that thing quick, get that backstrap off really quick. Um, and then you can take your time because it doesn't matter if the hind legs or the, or the forelegs go into rigor and then you butcher them two days later, they're on the bone. They're fine. But if you cut, meat that's in rigor you get what's called shortening so if you can imagine holding your arm out and stiffening your arm like lock your elbow and then now imagine cutting your bicep right at the elbow it's going to curl up like a venetian blind that same thing happens if the if that muscle is in rigor mortis so it, what it, it, there's a snapback it's a shortening and you sometimes you can even see it Usually you can't, but it happens. 
And what that does is that meat is then going to be tough forever. I mean, you can cook the hell out of it, but why do you want to cook the hell out of a backstrap? So this happens a ton with wild pigs. Like people shoot wild pigs and like, why is that backstrap tender? Well, first of all, the pig was probably six years old. Second of all, you you cut the pig when it was in rigor. And so your answer is if that happens, because it happens to the best of us, is make schnitzels and cutlets, Chinese food, or chicken fried steak, or like something else where you manually tenderize the backstrap. So that's the answer to that problem. But that's an issue that happens a lot. And so what I do is I have historically hunted in warm places. So I'll get that backstrap off and the tenderloin, like right off the bat. I will quarter the animal and then just keep that on the bone for a couple, two, three days in a cooler. You know, I don't, the thing that, another thing that drives me batty is when they bury things in in ice water, that's don't do that. Okay. Um, It's a bad idea. Cold, yes. Wet, no. Got it. Um, so you keep the you keep the the quarters or the big chunks cold for as long as you can stand it, and then you do the fine work. Maybe when you get home, and you're you're always going to be in good shape, no matter you know if you can keep something cold and dry. It's you're always going to be fine. So I mean, sometimes it's the back of your truck if it's the, the conditions are right. Um, but yeah, you you have a lot of leeway in terms of getting good things out of your meat provided you can either get on it immediately before it gets into rigor or let it get through rigor. And then kind of the icing on the cake is to actually dry age something for two weeks or more. When do you know it's out of rigor? It's usually two to three days. So I just, you know, uh, one, one way you can tell is if you can bend the joint of a, of a leg. Okay. If you can't bend the joint of a leg, it's in rigor. I see. I, I was, I'll be the first to admit I was, taught wrong then i don't remember why i acquired this information but i was told you wait at least until it's in rigor mortis because then at least the meat is pulling against the bone at that process it sounds like an efficiency thing no yeah Yeah, i I, I did but that's wrong so if you're to get an animal like just uh not not um I'm more or less reiterating for my personal self right now to make sure I understand because this is I'm trying to put all this in the in the in the in the memory bank right now. So you shoot something big, you're in a warm area or you're in the backcountry. First thing you do is before it gets to rigor mortis, get the backstrap out, get the tenderloin out, and then gut it. Everything else after that, you can take your time. Well, I mean, you could gut first, but I mean. Be pretty quick. Yeah, you only have so much time. I mean, they get in rigor mortis decently quick, and then once it's there, yes. you, once it's there, it sounds like you know you're in trouble. So, get that out. So, I would even say for a whitetail hunter in Michigan, then if you're gonna just take your, uh, if you're either gonna, a lot of people here take their uh, deer in to be processed. I do not, but let's say you did. Um, then if you got your backstrap out right away, that might be the smart move. Mm-hmm. Like the second you got it, most people take their tenderloins out right away, anyways, because they know, you know, that it gets, uh, you know, that for, for what you know, they they know they they dry up and become nothing overnight pretty quick um, if right. they if they're hanging. So, um, get those out before rigor mortis sets in. So when the animal's still loosey goosey or you know hot boning mm-hmm. is uh, is Ryan's going to learn about, but um, <laughs> do that. Then as far as the hanging process goes, if you can, let's say you didn't find them until like Ryan's first year, 
We found him a couple hours later, so he's in full riggy. Um, so at that point, then the best case scenario for Ryan is probably still cut the cut, cut the tenderloins out because they do seem relatively yes. hidden from this process. Like it seems as though they've found their way away from the problem. Um, where they have it, but they're so tender you barely notice. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, just in my experience, that's what I say. So for his, the best case scenario then would be to hang it in either a cooler or outside in the cold weather as long as possible um, with the fur on, and you're saying that two weeks would be fine. If, if the fur on with a is, is you gotta ha- it's gotta be right around freezing to do it with the fur on. Um, if it's above that, uh, the fur is gonna insulate enough. So you typically do it. You skin the deer and then hang it. So skin the deer and then hang it would be better. I mean, in most situations, I mean, there are opportunities where you can keep it fur on, but that insulates the the meat quite a bit. And um, let's say you're gonna put it even. A, let's say you're like uh, we have a refrigerator, a walk-in cooler up north, uh, where we hang all the deer. And normally is it 33 or 32. Then yeah. You can hang it. Then you can do fur on gut it, of course. Yeah. So gut it fur on and leave it as long as you can. Um, the, the last part of that question we were unpacking was, um, is three days. Like if you only have three days is obviously uh, let's, let's not use three days. Cause I know that's the other side of rigor mortis. The goal is to get on the other side of rigor mortis for sure. I know that. Yes. Is there a difference between day four and day 12 then? Where you might, if yes, you, okay, so yes. every there, day, every day counts. Ish, um, there's not a lot of difference between day four and day eight. Okay, um, it's once you get to about ten days that people can taste a difference in a dry aged animal, hmm. and all of the the tests done with beef and with venison in Europe, because you can buy venison in Europe, um, show that that ten days is where you start to really be able to pick up a dry aged flavor. Fourteen days. People, a lot of people really, really like it. 21 days is is generally considered the prime. And then once you get past 21 days, you get into a whole different realm of kind of possibly funky mold. cheesy, yeah. which um, I happen to like, but it's going to be one of those deals where, um, eh, you know, I mean, you get a little sketchy. Are, yeah. I mean, so, and then the longer you dry age, the more tight your setup has to be. Like it really has to be proper humidity, proper temperature. Um, and then, you know, the longer you dry age, the more uh, rind and the, uh, the more waste you're going to have. So um, because, I dry age. Because it becomes like a hardened shell yes, of dried exactly. out. Okay. Yes. And then this is also the, the argument for keeping things on the bone because when you take it off the bone, it's like everything that's that's exposed is going to get, you know, jumped. Yeah. You know, it's going to look disgusting and blah, blah, blah. But underneath it will be, will be amazing. Okay. Okay. Um, the amount of time, like let's say Jeffrey, he's got access to that cooler, 32, 33 degrees. Um, it's just a standard walk-in cooler, not sure on the humidity. Um, somebody like that in that situation ha- happens to have a walk-in cooler, happens to have the opportunity to hang it, but they probably don't like funky cheesy and they got to feed it to their wife and kids. Two weeks. Got it. Got it. 10 to 14 days. Okay. 10 to 14. Okay. 
That's 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 what I want to know. I I this was so much fun. Uh, yeah. This was so much fun. Makes me, we should do quarterly check-ins. To yeah, sure. just like <laughs> make sure we're not yeah, being stupid with the meat. Get your cell phone number and uh, call you in a panic <laughs> sometime. You know what's up. <laughs> hey, this well, is it wouldn't running. be the worst. Wouldn't be the worst text I've ever gotten. I uh, will occasionally get texts of I just ate this mushroom. Can you tell me what it is? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. You know what's you know what's funny too is like. Um, there's so much wrong with the information you find. I like really trust you. Kellen did a ton of research on you. I watched some of your stuff and I, I like feel really safe. Like I feel like I'm asking the person who knows the right answers, like at the end of a quiz, like you're the teacher uh, <laughs> right now. But I swear to you, there is, there might be more disinformation on this than anything else in the world. Like it's a lot. Well, yeah. it's, it's that twenty-eight gauger mentality. I know you don't. I know. I know. I have been. Uh, I have been called the uh, the perfect combination of Severus Snape and Alton Brown, and um, and I'll I'll own that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just I just Alton Brown. Okay. I just don't because I, I'm 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 into the meat science, and I, and I've seen enough fools where I I don't suffer them quite as well as I used to. I think one thing too is um, a lot of people got information passed down from like their grandparents or something like that. It's kind of like, true. it's kind of like in Michigan, like um, growing up at the deer camp that I was at, it was all my dad and his buddies. They were super anti shooting does. And I was into the information of like, okay, well, what I'm reading is we need to harvest does. We got a 50 to one ratio in Michigan. This is wrong. You know, there's a lot of errors going on, but the reason I was like, why do you guys believe this? And it was because, you know, their fathers. So the, my grandparents, they were at a time when deer were almost wiped out in Michigan. Yep. So you didn't shoot does because you wanted the population to keep going. So there was like a taboo around shooting doe. So my dad and his buddies grew up in an era where their parents were like, you shoot a doe, you're walking home. You better be sure there's antlers. So then like that like gets ingrained in them. So then when I come up and I'm like, yo, we should have like a earn a buck program in this camp because we are not uh -huh. shooting enough does. They're like, you're a monster. And it, obviously they're all on board now and, you know, they've all they've all learned that. But it was like turning that like changing the way they think because of old data. And I think that maybe cooking and dealing with meat is similar where some things were done out of necessity, like where they didn't have access to this or didn't have access to that. So they had to do this because this is what they had, um, you know, and I think that a lot of that information got passed down. And then there's also always idiots. Right. So yeah. then you've got a mix of dumb people passing down information to dumber people and then it like inseminates and then like there hasn't been a Hank Shaw to come along and be like hey dummies you know this is actually how you do it I've cooked a lot more uh, leg of lamb than you have um, so for that we thank you for coming in and saying no yeah. dummies don't do that <laughs> um, no I appreciate it and, and I think you make a, a really good point about um, it, it, this is really true in, in all of life. It's true with, with relationships. It's true with any area of study that you're interested in. It's true with everything is that you have to be open to new data. And there's a tendency for human beings to make a decision or, or say that a thing is, is true and then just stick with it. It's kind of umpire syndrome where we can all see oh, that the yeah. umpire called a strike when it was really a ball. Mm -hmm. But the umpire's made his decision, so he's going to stick by it, even though he probably knows he's wrong. Yeah. And you see this with human behavior a lot. And a sign of an adult is is like, I believe this. Well, here's some new data. Huh. 
Right. Okay, I'm going to adjust my belief. And then that takes courage. And not everybody has the, I don't know, I guess courage to be, to humble, to change the way they, they think. I mean, if you look at some of the things that I said and wrote about in 2007 when I started to do this publicly, it's different now because I've learned things. And, and, and I will occasionally get people like, well, but you said this. And like, yes, I did that. I said that. 13, 14 years ago, and I've learned more since then. Right. So that's a process that I think everybody needs to go through no matter what situation you're in. And it's one that you have to actively mindfully do. A hundred percent. You know, I, for us, it was always, um, I guess, I guess the way I would explain it is like, I probably have significantly more hunting experience in us as a team than almost anybody that we encounter just simply because we do it all the time. But at the same time, we do so many different things in so many different areas. You know, we could be access deer hunting in Hawaii. We could be python hunting in the Everglades. We could be, uh, you know, woodcock hunting in northern Michigan. We could be doing, you know, fishing, spear fishing for uh, invasive lionfish. You know, we do all these different things. So we don't, we've done everything a little bit. So we're not experts at anything. So it's made us pretty inquisitive when we work with someone who's like, this is what they do. They hunt lionfish in Florida. Like, that's yeah. what they mm-hmm. do. Um, we're naturally put in a position where you have, like... We're always asking you, you questions. You always have to ask. Yeah, I'm always asking questions. And um, that's like, you know, maybe that was God's way of making sure that we, you know, never got a big head or anything else. Because like I said to you, no ego here. Tell me if I'm wrong and here's why. And uh, even when I went out on the edge a little bit with the duck thing, I'm like, here's what I think. And you're like, close, you know. Uh, and that that's, that's part of it. But... I just, I, we really enjoyed this conversation. This is the longest podcast we've ever done. Yes, um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the we n- normally do forty five minutes to an hour. This was an hour and forty minutes, and I could keep going, uh, but we will let okay. you go. But I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate appreciate hanging out with you. I like to meet you in person. I like to do some. Sure. Uh, maybe we can do something for History Channel or something. Do a uh, one of our at the end of every one of our episodes. I don't know if you've gotten to see our main show yet. If Kellen sent you any, but we do a cooking segment at the end of every episode. Uh, but it might be fun to have you in as a guest one time and uh, teach me a thing or two. Yeah, that'd be fun. Oh, and side note, I actually you know and and they don't pay me to say this either, but I actually shoot those Nosler bullets. Good for oh, you. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> nice. Oh, I, that that's that's a they're, I'm they're, glad to hear it. They really are the best. So it's it's it makes a whole lot of sense. What's your caliber of choice then? Uh, two, I shoot a 270, um, and uh, I, I shoot the Nosler Trophy grade because it kills things dead. You, I like it. You're darn right it does. <laughs> you know, um, another the the 270 is such an interesting round because they've invented all these rounds around it. You know, the six five Creedmoors and all these different mm-hmm. and like in, around that size. And at the end of the day, the ballistics are just so impressive on the 270 Winchester. It seems like no matter what they do and bounce around it. It's just a wildly effective round. It really, really Especially is. Especially in 130 grain. Yeah. So I, I pretty much only Fast. shoot the, the, stand, the 130 grain because I find it shoots better than the 150. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, to the point where I've shot several elk with 130 grain 270. And it, it was fine. They, they tipped over and died. Yeah. Um, Speed kills. And yeah. I was really – I actually uh, – a uh, uh, hunting guide in eastern Oregon – that's all they shoot are 130 grain 270s. And I'm like, oh, should I bring 150? He's like, no, the 130 is going to be actually better. So I trusted him because, again, there's a case where he shoots way more elk than I do. Right. So I'm in the position where, like, I'm asking him, like, okay, he knows this better than sure. I Sure. So I, um, I've gotten really into 
um, for elk, for buffalo, for moose, for, for pretty much everything, my go-to round is the 28 nozzler, uh, which a lot of different gun manufacturers make. Um, it would be similar to a 7 millimeter. It's just really, really fast, and they make a smaller 160 grain because it's it kind of falls under like the the 300 wind mag size. You know, a lot of them are 175 grain and that sort of thing. And I go down to the 160 um, mm. to get those 3,300 feet per second ballistics, which is insanely fast uh, for such a for such a big chunk of lead. But same thing, we shoot the the Acubons, and I guess uh, uh, a word, uh, just a word from advice from us to you: if you're ever gonna mm-hmm. buy one gun. If you had one gun to hunt everything in the world with for the rest of your life, I would recommend the twenty-eight nozzler myself. Um, so just I don't know. I've killed a lot of things that two seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you probably killed everything. From, you still will. The only, I think, the biggest thing I've shot with it was a nil guy. Um, okay. Either nil guy or elk. I mean, I guess they're about the same size. Sure. And then I've shot everything down to a jackrabbit with it. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> Headshot, I hope. I, I, I clipped the top of its head off, so nice. I was very lucky on that one. <laughs> that that'll do it. You click the top of the head off on the uh, jackrabbits and the top of the heart off with the elk, and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I the only thing I might be a little nervous about with uh would be like a moose uh, sure. or a muskox with sure. uh with the two seventy. Well, if you go there, twenty eight nozzler. That's your twenty eight nozzler. Okay, yep. I'll look it up. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's funny. Like a lot of the other gun manufacturers now outside of nozzler. Are, are making it. I know it's, oh, mine is a Savage, obviously. That's our gun company that we work with. And they have a 28 no- They have a lot of guns that they make in the 28 Nosler that are chambered in that. And we're actually going to be shooting. Um, we're going to Wayne State University to do a ballistics test. And the idea behind it will be to show people, like when they're making the choice of what bullet to use when they go on a hunt, whether, okay, I'm mm-hmm. going to be doing whitetail hunting, I'm going to be doing muskox hunting, you know, what type of bullet, whether it be a ballistic tip, whether it be the AccuBond. Uh, like you're shooting, that sort of thing. So um, we're going to be using that gun to shoot the ballistics gel just to see all the different types of impacts and what it does so that when oh, someone, cool. yeah, that they'll be able to see it visually and like, oh, that's why I'll choose that bullet for that situation. But those ballistic tip bullets and the the 130 are really, really, really effective. Um, matter of fact, um, Mason from Nosler, um, who's the head of marketing there, we did a pronghorn hunt with him and uh, – he swears by the 308, the 270, and the 28 nozzler, and he just used a 308 with a ballistic tip, super light bullet, and the ballistics are just so good on it that it's like super flat shooting. Same thing though, if you're gonna go big, the 28 nozzler, just yeah, look into that. I think you'll, I think you'll dig it. Okay. Well, yeah, good. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, we we had a blast. It's a great podcast, and uh, awesome. We'll, we'll 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 keep in touch. If there's anything that we can do for you, uh, let us know. Um, we're, like I said, we're going to be launching our second season here on history channel. It'll air next September. We've already filmed three episodes, uh, but we'll be doing some cooking segments and stuff like that. And, you know, if there's anything where our brand can coincide with your brand or something like that, please, please let me know. Sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to come and cook some stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you have a wonderful day. We'll be talking to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks, Hank.